But we want to talk about something else a little closer to home. And this has been something we've been talking about throughout the week. And it has to do kind of with the moving in on the tent city in downtown Vancouver on the downtown east side just a couple of days ago. Talking about mental health and the issue of involuntary admissions when, in fact, somebody doesn't want treatment and is forced into treatment. Can that be a valuable tool? Joining me to talk more about this is Kendra Milne, who is the Executive Director of Health Justice Canada. Kendra, thank you so much for joining us on what is shaping up to be a busy day. Thank you for having me. Before we get into this and talk a bit more about mental health, how we deal with people who are struggling or dealing with mental health, can you tell us a little bit what is health justice and what does what does health justice do? Yeah, absolutely. Health Justice is a relatively new nonprofit in BC, and we um, bring together human rights expertise and the expertise of people with lived experience of involuntary mental health treatment in BC. And we um, use that expertise to do research and advocacy and education around how BC can improve its approach to involuntary mental health treatment. And so where we are now with that, and we were talking about this on the program yesterday as well with the Canadian Mental Health Association. So when we look at involuntary admissions and how many of those are happening in BC, do we know, say, year to year or over the past few years, how many people have fallen under those parameters and been admitted involuntarily? We do. We have data up to 2021 and um, currently in BC. So BC has some of the highest rates of involuntary treatment and hospitalization in Canada. Um, and currently about 17,000 people experience involuntary treatment um, in a year in BC. And some of those folks may experience it more than one time. And that's and- a significant increase. Sorry. No, 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 go ahead. A significant increase so compared to, say, a, a few years ago or, or increase over kind of what period of time? Yeah, so over um, the the last 10 years, um, the increase of 17,000 has gone up from about 11,000. So we're seeing actually people in the hospital voluntarily who choose to be there going down or staying about the same. And we're seeing really, really dramatic increases in the number of people that are experiencing involuntary treatment. And under the BC Mental Health Act, the reasons or the the criteria for somebody being admitted involuntarily, if they pose a harm to themselves, a harm to others, do we know what reasons are kind of, I guess, used the most when we're looking at people who are admitted? Or is there a trend as far as what part of the Mental Health Act is used to admit people? Yeah, we unfortunately don't know that because um, so the ombudsperson in BC uh, did an investigation in 2019 looking at um, sort of whether hospitals that were detaining people are complying with what's required in the act. And one of the things that's required is that the hospital document the reasons for someone to be detained and experience involuntary treatment. Um, and unfortunately, the ombudsperson found kind of widespread non-compliance and that the vast majority of um, files didn't have a- a- adequate reasons. So it's quite difficult to understand why people are being detained involuntarily. Um, But certainly we hear from folks in community um, that it's becoming harder and harder to get voluntary services. And we know that folks are really struggling in the face of um, COVID, which we know impacted folks who had pre-existing mental health issues. 
Uh, we also know that folks are struggling immensely with just the ongoing loss and trauma related to the drug poisoning crisis. And so we hear about folks struggling and we hear that they can't access voluntary services. And so the system is defaulting to using involuntary treatment. Uh, interesting. I hadn't thought of that. But is that a scenario then where if you're somebody that is looking for voluntary service or voluntary help and there's not a bed or there's not treatment, uh, is that different then in that there is always there always has to be space available for involuntary? Uh, I don't know that there has to be always space available, but certainly we know that, um, you know, hospitals that may be struggling with number of beds, they need to make decisions on priority and who has the highest needs. And one of the one of the thresholds that's used is the idea that if someone doesn't agree to their treatment and needs involuntary treatment, they're more serious is seriously in need of a bed than someone who may voluntarily ask for help. Um, and so we know that that's super problematic because we know folks are, um, you know, may go into an ER or to a hospital saying that they need help and they want help and they're actually um, discharged. Um, and then when they don't want help, perhaps because their health um, gets um, significantly worse, then we um, uh, subject them to involuntary treatment, which can be really, really traumatic and harmful for folks. That seems like a, a bit of a flaw, doesn't it? That people who are coming forward saying I need help are the ones that aren't getting it. Absolutely, yeah, and I think it's one of the one of the really big and harmful kind of mythologies that are um, seem really prevalent right now in BC is this idea that people experiencing um, mental health issues don't have the capacity or the ability to make decisions or know what's best for them and ask for help. And we know that folks who are in need of housing and are in need of, you know, adequate income or in need of mental health and um, substance use supports are out there asking for it, but face a system that doesn't meet their needs. And then um, this, we kind of respond as a society by assuming that they don't know their needs and assuming that we need to make the decisions for them through the means of involuntary treatment. Right. Are there times, though, when it is necessary or times when it can be beneficial in that we've been talking a lot about this? And one of the reasons we wanted to talk more about it today is uh, there are more and more calls from people who see uh, things that happen on the streets, whether it's attacks, whether it's people who are harming themselves. And it does appear that people are in a state where you're probably not in a position where you're going to say, I, I need to get help, I want to get help. So are there scenarios where involuntary treatment can be beneficial? So we at Health Justice, we don't take a position on whether or not involuntary treatment should exist, and we don't oppose it. And we certainly hear from folks with lived experience of involuntary treatment that have a range of experiences. So some people, you know, may have found a medication or gotten connected to services that really, really helped them, and that was a positive thing for them. Um, and so a lot of our work is on improving the process and making sure that people's dignity and autonomy are protected as much as possible in that process. But I do think there's a whole conversation around the fact that when we respond, uh, you know, with policy or with law or in our communities to when we're seeing people in a lot of distress, it really does them just an immense disservice and harm to only respond to their needs once they're in crisis, when we know what they need to avoid being in crisis in the first place. And so I think it's really hard to know whether or not we could potentially not have involuntary treatment, because in order to do that, we'd need to have, you know, housing and adequate income and adequate voluntary community-based mental health supports in place. Um, but certainly, we think that um, putting those things in place would reduce the need, the need for involuntary treatment for folks. Right. So when we see what happened this week, uh, as far as the tents on East Hastings Street in Vancouver, uh, the moving 
living in, uh, it didn't appear, well, it's not that it didn't appear, there was no solution for people who were living in the tents and were living in that encampment as far as they were told to leave, but there, it wasn't as, as though there was adequate housing or, or solutions offered up to people. Uh, is that kind of what you're, you're getting at, that it's not, uh, there are people there who probably did need medical help but aren't getting it? And there's lots of people there who didn't need to end up living in a tent on Hastings Street, right? Because we could have done things as a community and put in policy and services that would have supported them before they were in that situation. Um, and so we certainly know, you know, there's there's really robust research from around the world around what supports folks' mental health the best. And that is, uh, you know, supporting them to meet their basic needs through housing and income. It is allowing them to live with dignity and feel like they're a part of their community and feel included in their community and allowing them to have some choice and control over their lives. And so we need to put those things in place before we start assuming that people don't know what's best for them. And that gets back to as well, as long as in, in addition to people questioning or asking about involuntary admission, uh, there are recurring calls as well to reopen Riverview, uh, whether it's reopening it like it was before or a different model. Uh, but that's also brought up the fact that when Riverview was closed, it was closed with the idea of being people would be in the community and have the health supports that they needed uh, to, to make sure that they were successful. And we know that didn't happen. D- do you think if we did bring that model back or is that something that needs to be looked at as far as perhaps even trying to, to solve some of these problems? I think there's immensely problematic mythology around Riverview and around what kind of that institutional model can do. Um, and, you know, we know that. So w- there is no shortage of institutionalizing people and subject- subjecting them to involuntary treatment in BC. When Riverview closed, there was only about 800 folks um, um, at Riverview. And, and as I said, there's over 17,000 now in- experiencing involuntary treatment. And so I think that we are very quick to jump to that um, and something like Riverview that will often remove people from our community who we see in distress and comes, sometimes makes us very uncomfortable to see. Um, it, it's an easy solution and uh, I don't think it's an effective solution. I think it's a solution that creates harm. It just removes that harm away from what we can see. Um, and so uh, very much um, our recommendations for solution and what we hear from folks who know what they need to be well is that we need to invest in voluntary mental health and substance use supports that um, you know are coordinated. So if folks do go in the hospital, they're discharged to services and they're connected to folks and, and it's not this kind of piecemeal um, system that is so, so challenging for folks to navigate. Uh, and do you think that would be at least a good first step or what else do you think could we do or as far as what could we change to make it so it is a better system? Some of the things we actually focus on is improving um, the experience and the legal compliance for folks that are um, experiencing involuntary treatment now. So one of the things the person found is widespread non-compliance with the procedural protections that are in place to make sure that when we grant a hospital huge power to detain someone and give them medications and, um, you know, subject them to seclusion rooms and things like that without a person's consent, that there's really clear safeguards around those things. Because one of the things that can do is make the experience that less negative and less harmful for folks who are experiencing it. Because what we hear from folks is that once someone experiences involuntary treatment one time, if that's a really traumatic and negative experience, that will then alienate them from accessing mental health or any health services in the future for fear of experiencing that again. So it actually makes their situation worse because they no longer have safe access to healthcare services. 
So one of the very um, sort of simple and sort of um, urgent solutions that we recommend is reforming the involuntary system right now so that it doesn't traumatize folks and alienate them from services in general. And when you say that uh, the the kind of mythical thinking around Riverview, is there also mythical thinking then around involuntary uh, admissions in, in that how you just described it, that people would think it's this this great thing that's going to help people when in fact it can be harmful? Exactly. And I think things like increased transparency over how it's being used and ensuring that, that there's compliance with the laws and the standards that are set out to make sure that people are getting treated humanely, that they're getting treated with dignity, and that we're working towards a system that starts to offer people that feeling of inclusion and feeling of um, kind of regaining power over their own lives. We need to be moving in that in that place. And right now, BC has a very, very archaic involuntary treatment system, and we have immense work to do in order to get there. Kendra, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, residents living in a condo tower in the west end of the city say that they are frustrated. Both of the elevators in their building have broken down and there doesn't appear to be any quick fix in sight. According to some of the residents, the first elevator stopped working earlier this year and the second one stopped working just within the past few days. Well, joining us now is David. He is a resident of that building and is here here to tell us a little bit more about what things look like and what's happening there. David, thanks so much for taking the time to share this with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, so what floor do you live on? I live, uh, I don't want to say my exact floor, but I'm within the top five, uh, the very top. Okay. And it's, uh, as uh, was I correct in saying this is a 21-story building? That's correct, yeah. And so, so when the first elevator broke and there was still one working elevator, was was that okay, or did that lead to wait times, or was that an issue? Um, yeah, it was an issue because it did lead to very long wait times for the one remaining elevator, and that one remaining elevator consistently and constantly broke down um, because of all the excess extra strain on that one. Because now everybody in the building is having to use that one. Um, So that building was breaking down fairly frequently and they kept having to come out and repair it and whatnot. And then uh, this past Friday, it went down completely. And so we were left all weekend uh, with no elevators whatsoever. Uh, And that's got to be tough, I would imagine, for somebody, even if you're okay walking up and down those stairs. That's a lot of stairs. Mm -hmm. That is a lot. So, I mean, even for myself, I'm a middle-aged guy. I'm in reasonably okay shape. Uh, Even for me, it's hard by the time, you know, I've cleared my four levels of parkade just to come up from my car, just to get to the ground floor, and then up all those other steps, you know, uh, you know, I'm getting close up into the high teens. So, you know, I'm looking at close to 20 floors of stairs by the time I'm coming up from my car. Um, and that's for me. So my more concerns are people in our building, such as uh, an elderly couple who lives in the unit right below me. Uh, they're also up on the high floors. There's people in there with children. Uh, there's disabled people. Uh, myself and many other people in the building have dogs that we have to take in and outside, you know, a few times a day. Um, and it's, yeah, it's been very difficult if you got, you know, your arms full of groceries and stuff that you got to heave up the stairs. Like it's, it's not fun. 
especially given the, the heat wave we've had over the last couple of weeks, this is probably like the worst part of or worst time of year for this to happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so have people been checking on neighbors or are there people then that haven't been able to leave their condos, their apartments? I'm assuming there probably is. Um, I can say that the building itself has been very quiet since this happened, which leads me to believe that a lot of people are kind of uh, staying in their units as much as they can uh, to avoid having to make trips up and down because there hasn't been a lot of traffic I've seen sort of going up and down the stairwells when I have been in there. Um, I've seen in the parkade downstairs it looks like there's i don't know it looks more empty than usual so i feel like a lot of people have maybe taken off if they have other properties they can go to or whatnot um the problem with trying to help your neighbors is you can kind of help some people but in that particular building and probably like a lot of new buildings it can be hard to even get to know your neighbors because our fobs only allow us access to the floor that you live on um so you can really only kind of get to know the people that are on your own floor. Right. And that's about it. Other people from other floors are just kind of people you sort of say hi to when you pass, you know, in the elevator uh, <laughs> or the lobby. Right. Um, but it's hard to really get to know people because you can't really, you don't really see them very much. Um, and is it a newer building or how old is it? Uh, fairly new. The building was built in 2005. So new enough that I don't feel like it should be having all these problems. Have you heard anything then from the Strata Council or from the the management of the building? Yes and no. Their communications have been very vague. Um, they put up notices now and then saying, uh, you know, the elevator's out of service. The most recent one, when the second elevator went down, it kind of just said, the elevator's down. There's no ETA for diagnosis or repair. Um, and I think that's what really got everybody kind of to their breaking point because we've already had the one elevator down for months. So we were relying on this one. And then for them to say, oh, there's no ETA, um, that's not sitting very well with people. No. Now, I will say that as of yesterday, when I got home yesterday evening, uh, the, the second elevator was working again. Uh, there had been people from Richmond Elevator there all day, from what I understand, and I have a feeling that all the attention that this issue has gotten due to the news is probably what got people working on it a little bit quicker, I think. Um, but I still don't have a lot of confidence based on how it's gone in the past that that elevator will still be working when I get home today because they're so it's so up and down and so unpredictable that thing they'd get it working and then a couple hours later it would die again so uh, i've got my fingers crossed but i don't have high hopes no (laughs) and it's understandable why why you don't is it true as well that residents were told if you're unable to use the stairs for whatever reason that you should be calling the fire department yeah that was true so that was again sort of uh another part of the kind of vague notice that said, there's no ETA when this is going to be fixed, so everybody has to take the stairs, and if you're going to have a problem taking the stairs, then you have to call the fire department. And I actually called and talked to the fire department right next door to us and to just ask them if they were aware of the issue in the building and if they know that this is the advice that has been given. And they said they were not aware, and that's not the right advice to give because that's not their job. They don't come out and help people upstairs with groceries and things like that. Right. That's not what they're there for. No, which so, 
understandable. They're there for for emergencies, uh, and yeah. which which I mean, it sounds like there could potentially be emergencies caused by this. But again, not not just yeah. every day walking up and down uh, the stairs because the elevator's broken. That's right. They're not going to come and like take your dogs out for you and stuff like that. Right. Um, and then as a result of that, Strata put in another updated notice yesterday saying. Uh, forget that part. We didn't mean to say that. Don't call the fire department. Uh, you know, they're kind of backtracking. Uh, so who is it, do you think, that's that's kind of dropped the ball here? Is it the Strata Council or is it the management company? Or, or who is it that, that you think isn't um, isn't taking this or, or, or fixing this? I think it's kind of, personally, I mean, I don't obviously know all the ins and outs of everything, but I kind of think it's a combination of both. Um, the Strata Council is, of course, made up of mostly residents, so they should understand why this is urgent because they're getting affected by this as well. Um, the Strata Management Company, in my personal opinion, we've been we've had this company I think for the last about five years or so. Um, my personal thoughts are that they haven't been very effective in resolving other issues that have arisen in the building over the last few years. Uh, our interphone system took nine months to replace a couple of years ago, which meant every time somebody buzzed us to come in, you have to go downstairs and physically let them in. Um, it's another example of sort of dropping the ball on things. Um, from what I understand, I don't know if it's true or not, but from what I understand, the reason why this, even the first elevator took so long is because they're trying to shop around to get the best prices on things and stuff. You know what? I get it's business, but at the same time, you can only drag it out for so long before it's like, okay, somebody's got to just make a decision and spend a minute of money if they need to, because this can't go on. Right. Um, and, and presumably you all pay strata fees into the fund that is supposed to be there to fix things like this. Exactly. And I've also heard rumblings that uh, they don't want to use the contingency fund because uh, they're afraid that prospective buyers that want to come to the building are not going to want to buy a condo in there because the contingency fund has been dipped into. But it's like, well, that's what it's for. (laughs) Like, I would rather buy a condo with a low contingency fund than buy a condo that has no working elevators. You know, it's like uh, way out kind of pros and cons here. (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely. Well, David, thanks for joining us and telling us about this. And I do hope that things get resolved and you get at least one elevator back. Because like you said, you can do this. It's a slog, but you can do it. But there are people in that building that I'm guessing just just aren't able uh, to do that. Or it's a a huge burden. Absolutely. It definitely is. So we'll keep our fingers crossed and hope for the best, I guess. All right. Well, let us know if things get better. Uh, David, thanks again so much for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you, Joe. We were just talking with one of the residents of a 21-story Vancouver condo tower where both of the elevators are broken and there is no ETA as to when even one of the elevators is going to be fixed. And a bulletin that was put out from the Strata Council to the residents was basically saying they're working on it, but there is no ETA at this point for getting that elevator back up and running. We wanted to talk more about this and what kind of rights people have. Can this be declared an emergency? So Wendy Wall is joining us now, president of the Vancouver Island Strata Owners Association. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting us. Uh, What is your response to even hearing about this, the fact that both elevators are out in a 21-story building and the owners are being told, we have no idea when it's going to be fixed? It's, it's really not that 
uh, unusual or unforeseeable. Uh, one, of the th- one of the things that's very interesting about this is that it's actually far more complicated to replace an elevator than people think. It's not like replacing your TV or, or your fridge at home. Um, there's, some, there's some really complex things going on. It's a 20-year-old elevator, so building codes have changed in that time. Um, so the need to replace it can actually produce a ripple effect. Um, for example, it, it could uh, kick, well, it will, and kick in a new code uh, requirements for the fire safety systems that are tied into that elevator. Just, just as an example, in Victoria alone, um, if an elevator needs updating, in Victoria we have over a 1,000 buildings where the fire panel itself would also need to be upgraded. So that potentially triggers uh, a wider upgrade to the entire fire safety system. So it's not as simple as saying, well, we're going to order an elevator and replace it. There's actually quite a complicated design phase at the beginning where the professionals are going to develop the scope of work and all the specifications. Then it goes out to tender. uh, And then there there may have to be a meeting at the strata to approve the money. Um, Almost certainly. (laughs) They'll need to have, they'll need, and then the question is, do they have the money? Is there enough money in their contingency reserve fund to replace even one elevator? And if there isn't, uh, you know, are they going to do a special levy? And if that's the case, they need a three-quarter vote of the owners at a meeting. And it is not uncommon for people to, to vote that down. But, but surely you can't continue on in a 21-story building with no elevators. Of course. No, they, I would really encourage these owners to be prepared that if that's the eventuality that they support the vote to approve the money and get this done. Uh, But there is a long history in shared living where even when something is very, very necessary, it's not approved. And and the perfect example we have is Surfside Towers in Florida. Those people knew for years that they had major structural and foundational problems, and they wouldn't approve the money. And that stretched on for years until what finally happened is the collapse. So it's really important, even though it's a very frustrating time right now for those owners, to start thinking about what this means to their pocketbook and support the council. So as soon as the information, the scope of work, the RFP is back and they've got the prices and they're ready to sign a contract, when they have that meeting, uh, I really encourage those owners to um, bite the bullet and um, be prepared if there is a special levy. Is, is it different, though, if we're talking about a scenario where maybe they should have jumped on fixing the first broken one sooner, now with both of them down, if there are people with disabilities who literally cannot leave their homes, get to get out of their building, it, doesn't that kind of make it more of an emergency? When the second elevator broke, um, yes. And, and here I would say the council, this is a new situation that they've never faced before. It's complicated legally. I always recommend reach out to a lawyer, find out what your options are and and how the law works in this situation. So when the first elevator broke, most lawyers would probably say, well, that doesn't technically count as an emergency under the Strata Property Act. But as soon as that second elevator broke down, uh, a lawyer might say, well, yes, now replacing one elevator at least has become an emergency. The trouble with the emergency under the Strata Property Act is it only allows the council, uh, without a vote of the owners, 
to spend the minimum amount of money necessary to make that safety issue, to resolve that safety issue. So that does not necessarily mean replacing the elevator. Right, it might be another minim- patch. Yeah, the minimum amount. And what that is for is um, to reduce the delay. It, it takes at least 20 days to call uh, a general meeting of the owners to vote on something. So that minimum repair is really meant for something like water <laughs> pouring through the roof or uh, an elevator breaks down where there is an option to do a minimum repair. On a roof, that might mean tarping the hole. On an elevator, that might mean buying a part that is expensive, but you know, not as expensive as the entire elevator replacement. If it gets that elevator working, then that's the minimum repair. And then they have the time to call that general meeting and start talking about a, a more permanent fix. But with elevators, it's tricky. We don't know, I don't know exactly what's wrong with that elevator. I don't know if there is a minimum fix. And if there is not a minimum fix and they have to replace that whole elevator, there is nothing quick in this fix. They have to go through the design phases, the scope of work, the RFP, um, coming up with how much money that's going to be. And then we're faced with labor shortages and uh, supply chain. There's no guarantee that that new elevator is going to come in a few weeks. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, so complicated. We're going to continue following this. Uh, Wendy, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Great. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Well, some residents of Kitsilano Point in Vancouver are not impressed after learning that a license to build a road through a part of Vanier Park has been granted. It's all part of the Senac development, which is happening at the south end of the Burrard Street Bridge. And joining us to talk more about this is Alex Curry, one of those protesting against the building of this road through Vanier Park. Alex, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Jill. Happy to be here. Uh, so what are your concerns? Or I guess I'll start with saying, how did you first find out that this license to build the road had been granted? Well, only just very recently. But, you know, first let me say that, uh, you know, there's been very little in the way of transparency. Uh, most of these discussions have been done in secret. And really, it, it comes as a bit of a shock. I mean, I'm absolutely in favor of, um, you know, reconciliation and the uh, success of the, farm, the First Nations in this project. I mean, I also support, of course, the idea of more affordable rental housing in Vancouver. And it just uh, all of a sudden came along that uh, this license had been granted by the federal government and a bit of a shock because, uh, you know, it's a uh, uh, public parkland and, uh, you know, it uh, hate to see the idea of a dangerous precedent where a developer, you know, any developer can, you know, annex public parkland, you know, to uh, enhance their development. So a bit of a concern there, a bit of a surprise. We knew that they, you know, were going to need access of some kind, but they do have access from uh, Chestnut Street or from Fur uh, Street and uh, seemed kind of odd that, uh, that the federal government uh, who owns this land would be willing to uh, uh, give uh, a license to go right through the park when it's used by a lot of people. And so where exactly in Vanier Park, for people that maybe aren't familiar with how that park kind of runs uh, in Kitsilano Point, where exactly would the road be going? Right. It run uh, from Chestnut uh, east uh, along the boundary, uh, outside the boundary of the uh, Sanac development property. 
Um, probably, you know, I, I don't know exactly how much. I'm not an expert on the, uh, you know, the kind of uh, uh, measurements that have been made, but uh, probably in the area of uh, 50 or 100 feet of land or so being taken off the park. Uh, and uh, to, to the extent that they would end up with an extra 5 to 10 percent added to their parcel of land uh, in, in, in park space. And, of course, that uh, is a uh, bit of a concern because we already know that this uh, uh, development will have uh, a lot of people there, you know, probably 10 times the uh, uh, population density that's in Vancouver's West End. So adding more to it uh, seems, uh, seems a bit of a, a concern. So that, that will run... Uh, east toward the uh, Burrard Bridge from Chestnut Street. Okay. And is it your thought then, or, or what are your thoughts then? Is it people are opposed specifically to the road and they're okay with the development, or is there opposition to the development as well? Well, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, the people are somewhat surprised at the uh, scale of the development for the, you know, there's 10 and a half acres or something like that of land, and they're going to put uh, uh, probably as many as uh, maybe 9,000 people in there, you know, 6,000 units. So that that's a bit of a surprise that uh, it would be possible to put that many people into a relatively small space of land like that. But uh, mainly it is the, the road that's a concern because, you know, they have every right, of course, to do what they want on their own land. Uh, the concern is uh, with respect to um, annexing further property in the, in the park uh, and for a road. Um, you know, there are issues with respect to uh, uh, traffic uh, in the area, in the neighborhood, uh, with uh, you know, children's safety. There's a lot of people play out in that area. Uh, there's a pathway through there that people use uh, many times on their way to kind of Granville Island or over that direction. It's right adjacent to the uh, Vancouver Academy of Music. So there's people around there all the time, and it, it does seem odd um, you know, again, I think First Nations have been great around the idea of protecting, um, you know, our wild lands and our environment, and and this seems odd to uh, actually uh, take uh, public parkland um, and uh, turning it into a road when, in fact, you know, we're all kind of trying to work in the same direction here to uh, uh, to keep Vancouver natural and comfortable to live in. So that that seems a bit uh you know out of uh character and uh unfortunately we we really haven't had a conversation uh with uh, first nations or in fact with the city the city leases the property off the federal government and uh presumably i don't know i guess that lease maybe you know is in question now too whether that's been broken by the federal government giving a license i'm not sure but um the uh, uh the idea that uh they uh, have this uh, uh, chance to, uh, uh, you know, have that, that space there that uh, uh, has actually, you know, was originally, these were uh, Squamish First Nations uh, traditional lands. Um, they ceded Vanier Park lands, uh, apart from the Sinac development piece, to the federal government in, in 2000. In other words, they sold the land in 2000 for $92.5 million. Um, seems um, uh, a bit uh, different now that they're you know looking to uh, get that land back after they've been paid for it. Anyway, again, it would be really helpful to have uh, a conversation, to just have a discussion about these things, and there hasn't really been any of that kind of thing done either with the city or with the First Nations people or with the developer and or with the federal government, and it leaves all of us kind of just uh, in the dark a bit and uh, hoping for a good cooperative effort together because, I mean, we welcome the project to the area, uh, we all know that you know this kind of uh, uh, accommodation is needed, 
but we need to have some kind of discussion and transparency around it, or at least we'd sure like to have. Right. But we've certainly heard, and I should mention, we did reach out to the Squamish Nation to talk about this, and we've not heard back from them specifically on this since we reached out. But they have said in the past to us when we've been talking about this and when other media outlets have asked them that there is no legal requirement to hold public hearings, although they did say that they would be engaging with the community, but also saying that they, they made it very clear that there was going to be a limit as to how sensitive they would be to the concerns of neighbors over the development. Sure. And, you know, I'm totally in agreement with them there. I'm fine with that. I mean, gosh, this is their land and, you know, they they can develop it how they want. And God knows we all need the accommodation. But but uh, the issue is really with uh, extending beyond the uh, into, into the parkland. Um, it would be very helpful, of course, as well to have a conversation about the traffic flow and the patterns that uh, will develop. Um, you know, we've got bike lanes running right through here and, and uh, pedestrian walkways and uh, you know, very uh, limited road uh, access in many ways because of the the nature of Kitts Point. There's not a lot of through roads or anything there. So, so any of these things uh, will uh, be impacted by the development. And and heck, like I say, we'd like to have a kind of a conversation so that we can all um, cooperate and make sure that we're making the right decisions. I, you know, I'm just one person here. I mean, there are um, hundreds of others, and there's. Pardon me. There certainly are uh, um, uh, recognized organizations like the Kids Points Resident Association and others who really have a lot of knowledge and a lot of understanding of all these issues, and they would like to be involved in the conversation. I mean, I'm just speaking for myself, and with respect to the fact that it's a concern to me, and I, I know it's a concern to hundreds of others too. Uh, right, and people have signed a petition specifically about the road and concerns about this road, the permit for that being granted. Do you think it's a done deal, or is there a possibility to have that conversation and maybe have your concerns listened to? You know, I would like to think that we can still have that conversation in some way. Um, you know, maybe there's some some kind of compromise with respect to the road and some way of what, what could possibly be done. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, at this point, uh, we don't have um, a lot of positive feelings about it because we haven't really seen anything done in an open, transparent way. And uh, I, I'm sure the First Nations people could benefit from this again as well themselves, Uh in order to kind of, we can all be good neighbors kind of thing, and we can, you know, work together and make sure it all works. Um, You know, it's not uh, helping their kind of public relations in the area at all, and I hate to see that, you know, because uh, they're doing the right thing by, you know, by uh, making, doing this development, and I hope it's successful in many ways for them. But it, uh, so anyway, I I just, I don't know whether there's any possibility that uh, anything could be changed. I suspect... uh, it would have to take some kind of uh, um, uh, movement by the city or the parks board or someone to uh, work with the federal government and determine why this license was done in the way it was. All right. Well, Alex, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us and uh, for bringing us this update. Well, thank you, Jill, for your interest in it. And thanks for uh, giving me the opportunity to tell a little bit about how I feel. (laughs) Thanks a lot. 
Well, we certainly talked at length while it was happening, talking about the decampment on that stretch of East Hastings Street in Vancouver and the fire department order saying it was dangerous, not only for those living in the tents, but also for the surrounding buildings, saying that fire crews had been called to the area several times and found that there were obstacles in getting to the buildings and to be able to put the fires out. We also know that it was quite chaotic in the afternoon when the tenters were being asked to pack up their things and to leave the area. And if you go down there now, you will see that it doesn't look all that different from what it did before. There are still tents along that stretch of East Hastings. Well, Sarah Lehman is a lawyer with the Sarah Lehman Law Group and is joining us now to talk a little bit more about this. Sarah, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. Uh, You had put out on social media as well, questioning, I think what a lot of people might be questioning, what was the purpose or what was the end goal of going in and doing this? And, And what are your thoughts kind of on how this unfolded? Well, I have to say that I was absolutely shocked when I drove down East Hastings Street yesterday and then also today uh, because, you know, after looking at everything that was in uh, social media, on the news about the decampment and what was going on in the downtown east side, it was my understanding, along with I'm sure many others, that uh, residents were going to be displaced and asked to pack up their belongings and to go elsewhere, where I don't know. However, uh, it really appears that nothing has changed uh, on that stretch of East Hastings. And in fact, it looks, in my opinion, almost worse than ever down there. What did it look like? Sorry, when you drove uh, down there yesterday and today, what, what did you see? Well, I mean, there are tents lining both sides of the street for blocks on end. Uh, I would estimate there's probably about four to 500 people who are on the street. Uh, There's garbage on the street. You know, it just looks very, very unsanitary, very unsafe. And uh, quite frankly, it's it's really rather disturbing. Is there a a way, a better way, I suppose, well, obviously there is a better way to to deal with these types of things, but even legally speaking, uh, is there a legal avenue that could have or should have been taken or, or that was kind of missed? I really think that this boils down to a complete and total lack of leadership, uh, not just from our city government, but also from the province and the federal government. I mean, this is not an easy issue. This is an issue of inadequate housing, um, inaccessible housing, and a number of people experiencing extreme homelessness and living in dire conditions, uh, creating unsafe conditions for themselves and for other residents and business owners of the neighborhoods that they're occupying. I mean, this is just absolutely out of control. And I think it really requires some leadership and uh, a very comprehensive uh, and unified um, plan to move forward. Uh, Some of the people that spoke about the reasons why they have been living in tents and why they've been in those tents that we see on East Hastings uh, was uh, not everybody, but some of the people saying they live in SROs, they they do have housing, but because of the heat wave or for a number of other reasons, the the buildings in horrible states of disrepair, they actually chose it was better to be living in one of those tents than going home. Uh, When we look at that, I mean, what does that say about housing strategy or trying to figure out how to fix that? 
Yeah, I mean, again, it's just such a, a multifaceted issue. And I've been hearing the same types of things from uh, the displaced and, and homeless community on the downtown east side. Uh, they don't want to be in tents. You know, they want to have housing and access to housing. Uh, but many of these privately owned SROs are just woefully mismanaged. They have uh, absolutely atrocious conditions for people uh, that are not, quite frankly, livable. And so there needs to be a solution here. And we have to see our elected leaders come forward to create that solution sooner than later. What about with people that are living there as well? And I realize that, that people have have found themselves in this scenario uh, through through various reasons. And, and I know a lot of the circumstances are absolutely heartbreaking. But I, I, we've also talked a bit about uh, people saying, well, I'm, I, I don't want to go live here because there are too many rules. Uh, modular housing might work for some. It doesn't work for others. So what about kind of the personal accountability of of being part of the solution? Absolutely. I think that there has to be a high degree of personal accountability as well, because, of course, you know, in any society, there are rules that we are expected to follow. And so I think that that is an important piece of the puzzle. But at the end of the day, many of these privately owned SROs are not providing adequate alternatives. Uh, It may be that the government needs to step in and uh, quickly erect, you know, some type of housing alternatives for people that may be offered, you know, a plethora of options to meet different residents' different needs uh, in order to adequately address this issue. It's going to take time and money, but it's also going to take leadership. And that, I think, is the thing that we're most lacking right now in Vancouver. And what about the difference as well? When we look at the tents on that stretch of East Hastings and the amount of time that they were permitted, I suppose, before uh, this happened uh, earlier this week, although like you said, there are still tents there and they've kind of halted uh, the decampment. What about the difference between the lack of time or the, sorry, the amount of time that that tent, that encampment was permitted in a very visual uh, place, more high traffic place as compared to say Oppenheimer Park or Crab Park? Yeah, I think that that is a key difference here because I feel as though this issue on Hastings Street only started getting quite a bit of attention when it started to affect, uh, it impacts the tourist industry and local businesses, Um, which, again, these are valid concerns. Uh, Many business owners in that area rely on tourists, uh, and it's our reputation as a city and as a province, even as a country, that's at stake here. So the fact that we've allowed this encampment to go on, uh, benefiting really absolutely nobody uh, for so long is, in my view, just deplorable. And when you talk about leadership as well, it's something, this certainly isn't new. And, and we talked about this on this program at the day of the kind of the eviction day or the, the, the last day when the, the people living in tents were told, you've got to move, you've got to get out of here. I mean, we can go back to, what, what was it, 2002, I think it was, that we were having these exact conversations with an encampment outside of the Woodwards building. Yeah, I mean, this has been going on in Vancouver for uh, way too long. Um, It it is a problem that is not going away, Uh, not to say that the homeless community is a problem, but these are people who need to go somewhere. We can't just show up and say, you know, get off the street and pull down your tent. Well, where do they go? Um, So again, you know, I'm just very disheartened to see that the leadership in Vancouver uh, has been so lacking on providing any type of solution to this issue beyond just simply pack up your things and leave. And again, that's not even happening. 
Right. Because it, not only is it not fair to people who are living there, it's not fair to business owners in that neighborhood. It's not fair to residents who, who don't feel safe. Uh, I mean, it's not fair to, to so many people that are impacted by this. I completely agree. I think that there are, you know, uh, multiple um, communities and groups of people who are being very, very unfairly impacted by the situation. It's not just the displaced residents who are camping in the downtown east side. It is business owners. But it's members of, um, of the communities who wish to access services and social services in Chinatown who've perhaps been precluded from doing so or feel intimidated going into those neighborhoods now, including seniors. You know, it's residents, it's people who uh, perhaps live alone and don't feel safe walking on their street anymore. Um, there's a lot at play here, and I think there's a lot at stake as well, and our government needs to step up to solve this problem. All right. Sarah Lehman, thank you so much. Always great to have you on the program. So thank you so much for taking some time for us. Thanks so much for having me.